0: There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Please
1: join me in welcoming Father Eric Bergman. Well, we always uh, begin with a prayer, but I'm going to give a little introduction before we pray, because uh, I talked about some of these things a few years ago that have afflicted our nation over the past two days. And I know how painful the last couple of days have been for many of you since the Supreme Court handed down its decision on Friday imposing so-called same-sex marriage on the entire nation. And if you want to know how we got here, I explained it to the Institute of Catholic Culture in a two-part series 4 years ago and maybe some of you were there for the series I did on uh, the Roots of Immorality, Lambeth Conference 1930. Anybody remember that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Very good, so uh, I think we have that. Is that available, Deacon? I believe it. Yes. So, so we have, we have that, and, uh, and I'm not going to do that, so uh, my subject matter is related tonight to these talks. Tonight's lecture isn't going to be a reprise of those sessions, so I commend them to you, uh, those uh, CDs to you, and encourage you to begin to understand that what happened to our country last week was the logical outworking of forces that we put in motion uh, decades ago. The principle that I articulated in those lectures was this, and this is important for us to understand as uh, we try to explain to our neighbors how this happened. When we bless marital relations that are intentionally infecund, This is the principle. When we bless marital relations that are intentionally infecund, it will not be long before we bless sexual relations that are inherently infecund. This is something that people understood decades ago. And you know what happened this month, 50 years ago? 50 years ago this month, on June the 7th, Griswold versus Connecticut, all the contraceptive laws in the country were overturned, thrown out. All the laws that ban contraception were thrown out on June 7, 1965, 50 years ago this month. And so it's fitting then that uh, we get this decision now, 50, 50 years later, the same month. It's the logical outworking. What happened on Friday is a logical outworking of what the Supreme Court did in 1965 in Griswold versus Connecticut. And so those uh, CDs, that talk I gave uh, around, I think, September 11, uh, 2011, uh, that will explain to you how contraception and the embrace of it, the blessing of marital relations that are intentionally infecund, led to the blessing by our nation on Friday of sexual relations that are inherently infecund. The sterility of the culture of death we want to avoid the virility of the gospel of life is what we want to promote, and so, with that in mind, I'll uh, begin my talk. The Lord be with you. Yes, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, for this time that you've given us to be with one another, for the safe passage that you granted to people who came from near and far, and we ask your blessing upon all to hear us this day. Lord, we ask that you would give them your spirit, that they might have the fortitude to speak with courage those things they learned this night. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. My talk is about the ideology of androgyny, but it it will not be, as I said in my introduction, primarily diagnostic. Rather, the thrust of this talk will be medicinal. How do we form the families that are going to restore civilization? As Deacon Sabatino talked about in his introduction. Now, we didn't talk to each other beforehand. In fact, uh, I was uh, closest I've ever come to being late. Uh, I made it on time, though. Uh, Terrible traffic in Pennsylvania. We didn't talk to each other at all. Uh, This is simply, I think, a sign of the spirit. How do we form the families that are going to restore civilization? Very simply, the answer is the title of my talk, Men Should Be Men. Nevertheless, I have to begin with telling you what androgyny is. What is androgyny? It might be a word you've never even heard. There was a uh, skit on Saturday Night Live when I was in college called It's Pat. Uh, maybe some of you remember that. And this is the androgynous person that they couldn't tell whether it was a man or a woman. Of course, it was played by a woman. But Uh, Androgyny is, in short, sexlessness, sexlessness. The reduction of the differences between men and women, between the sexes, to the degree that men and women are interchangeable. The ideology of androgyny holds that men and women are interchangeable. To be clear, this does not comport with reality. Every single cell of my body, every single cell of my body indicates that I am a male. They've broken down the double helix. They know from every single cell that I'm a man and you ladies that you are women. Exhume my body 500 years from now. Take one self. As one cell that can be broken down they'll know that I was a man. They'll know that I was a man. Thus androgyny is unscientific because it ignores human biology and puts in the place of human biology which we know through science, puts in the place of it ideology. Androgyny is as an ideology then necessarily ungrateful. This is the second characteristic of androgyny. It is first unscientific, it is second ungrateful because it ignores the origin common to every human being who has ever lived since Adam and Eve. And what is that origin? Each of us is derived not from sexlessness but from sex and I don't mean marital relations immediately, what I'm talking about is specifically a father and a mother. That is, a man and a woman. None of us were derived from androgyny. Even the children who were made in petri dishes and then inserted into their mothers. Even the children who were conceived through artificial insemination. Every single person on the face of the earth alive today was not derived from sexlessness, not derived from androgyny. Every single person was derived from sex. A father and a mother, a man and a woman who are distinct from each other. Different, complementary. A father and a mother who offered their distinct gifts to each other, to cooperate with God and bring new life into the world. Mm Androgyny does not just forget the reality of oneself. It forgets the reality of one's parents. It forgets the reality of one's parents and is therefore transgressing the commandment honor your father and your mother. Androgyny, in its ingratitude, transgresses the commandment honor thy father and thy mother. Third characteristic of androgyny, first it's unscientific, second it's ungrateful, third androgyny is unloving. It is unloving because in denying the reality of oneself and in denying the reality of one's parents, the ideology of androgyny denies the reality of God, the reality of the God who made us in his image and likeness, the God who is love. If we deny God who made us, the God who is love, we deny love itself, love from which proceeds life. God's love for us issued in our lives. It is precisely the complementarity of the sexes that issues in life. And setting aside that complementarity, putting ourselves at the center of the universe, Imagining that we can will whatever we desire, we are left only with death. The will to power issues in death. Nietzsche was an idiot. Hitler tried to put Nietzsche's philosophy into action. And what did it issue in? Unprecedented death for the world. The worst in terms of people who were killed, not proportionally, but the worst conflagration in the history of the world in terms of the number of people who were killed. The will to power issues in death. We have turned aside, we've turned aside from the very means to life, and we are thus incapable of love's fullest realization, participation with God in the propagation of life. Love's fullest realization is participation with God in the creation of life. That's why we call it procreation. Humans do not reproduce. Don't ever use that word. Don't ever talk about reproductive technologies or uh, reproductive health. We aren't animals, we don't reproduce. We intentionally love pour ourselves out for the other, the other pours herself out for us. And from that mutuality, from that mutual self-sacrifice, love proceeds. We do not reproduce, we procreate. We create for God. So narcissism of the androgynous variety, narcissism of this type is absolutely suicidal. It is a death wish of obscene proportions, one that if logically carried out, if logically extrapolated, would end in the extinction of mankind, which of course is the absolute denial of God's design. So that's the end of the bad news, all right? As I said, to counter this ideology, men should be men. So that's the end of the diagnostic element, and now we talk about how to fix it. We must begin by asking the question: Why are men necessary? When I might talk I could give you one on women, but I'm giving you a talk on men. So uh, we're going to talk about why are men necessary today? To answer, we're going to look to St. Augustine and hopefully you got this paper, if you didn't I think uh, Melanie is going to hand them out. Uh, This are quotes from uh, the work, (coughs) The City of God. St. Augustine was born around the year 355 A.D. in North Africa. And he died August 28th, 430, in the besieged city of which he was the bishop. And that city was called Hippo, Hippo Regius, which is now in the modern country of Algeria. And before you are these quotes, they are all from book 19 of the City of God. And this book explains the necessity of hierarchy and what hierarchy accomplishes in our fallen world. St. Augustine points out in Book 19, of The City of God, that hierarchy is natural because there is a hierarchy from the beginning of creation between man and man. Uh, God, That is, God is above man. And there's, of course, the angels as well. So there's God and the angels and men, right? So there is a natural hierarchy in the world from the beginning of creation. But hierarchy between human beings is unnatural. God did not make us to be over one another. It is because sin entered the world that hierarchy became necessary. Hierarchy is necessary because of man's sinful nature. Hierarchy was not a part of the relationship. If you read the uh, account of Genesis, the creation, hierarchy was not a part of the relationship between Adam and Eve. So hierarchy enters into the world as a result of sin. Remember where God says, so man will rule over you, says that to the woman. Hierarchy enters into the world after sin, not previous to it. Hierarchy is in the world because God is over man but hierarchy between men is something that happens as a result of sin. The sinful tendency to dominate the other has to be restrained and the natural inclination to serve the other has to be fostered and nurtured. Sin means we want to dominate each other but our truest nature the nature with which God blessed Adam and Eve at the creation, the truest nature was that of service. And of course, Christ comes into the world to restore that nature. And what does he say? I come among you as one who serves, right? And he gets down on his knees and he washes their feet and says, even as I have done to you, so you must do to each other. So the Lord is restoring the original nature, which was good, to counter the fallen nature that we assumed when sin entered into the world. Men are more suited to restrain this tendency to dominate the other. Men are more suited to restrain this tendency, this sinful tendency, to dominate the other. So it falls to men to fulfill the responsibility of maintaining order. And when I say that, what do I mean? You know that men are, how are they better suited to maintain order? Well, men are 15% larger than women, on average. Just go out in the street or even in this room although this probably isn't a cross-section of society, as Deacon Sabatino pointed out. We try to get a random sample. Just grab a man off the street, grab a woman off the street. On average, the man will be 15% larger than the woman. But not only that, when they test strength, he is 15% stronger than the woman on average. Now, obviously, there's the exception of the man who is unnaturally or unusually weak. And there is the example of the woman who is incredibly strong. But on average, men are stronger and bigger, and therefore better suited to restrain those who would harm the vulnerable. And this reality was demonstrated uh, in September of last year. And maybe some of you have heard about it. There is a man who calls himself Fallon Fox. And he's a professional fighter. But he went to Thailand uh, a few years ago, and he had himself castrated, and came back. Now, he had already fathered a child. He's a father, so he has a a child. And uh, he decided, though, that he wanted to be a woman. And so because the androgyny uh, is inherently and necessarily sterile, he had himself literally castrated. And they tried to create a form, although this is, of course, impossible, uh, something that would uh, resemble the female uh, genitalia. But obviously, it's not at all. Uh, it's, it's simply surgery. So uh, Fallon Fox was in a title fight with a girl named Tamika Brentz. And after only 2 minutes and 17 seconds, he had knocked her unconscious. But not only had he knocked her unconscious, he had crushed her orbital bone. And she required seven stitches. After she awoke and they were able to interview her, she said, I don't think that women that used to be men should really be allowed to fight women. I've never experienced in the ring the strength that I encountered against Fallon Fox. I could barely move when he held me. As she said she, she was using the politically correct uh, designation and kept calling him a woman, even as she said, I shouldn't have had to fight him because he's a man. The absurdity of all, if we think about what he did to her, it's amazing it took two minutes and 17 seconds to do it. It wouldn't take me two minutes and 17 seconds to do that to any woman in this room, that's terrible. But isn't it great that I have the strength, not to hurt you, but to defend you. I have been given just naturally, not because I work out, not because I lift weights, just because I was made a man. I have been given the strength to protect you from the bad man who might come through that door. This order, maintaining this order through sometimes physical force necessary, this order has a purpose. Citizens of the city of God, it allows for the contemplation of eternal truth and the recourse to the means of salvation. If we do not have order, then we cannot contemplate the eternal verities. We cannot contemplate eternal truth if we don't have order. Now the secular world, the city of man, They want order too. And what do they want order for? Well, they want order for conspicuous consumption, right? They want to consume that which they have. They want to assume or acquire, rather, goods. For example, what happened this past week in Tunisia, we saw a horrific terrorist attack uh, on a beach there in which 37 people were killed, all vacationers from, uh, for the most part, Northern Europe. And what did the people do after disorder invaded their vacation? After the man from ISIS killed 37 of them, though he was killed by the police, and though the police were in charge, again, of the beach... There were 20,000 European tourists in Tunisia. All the airlines in Europe canceled flights to Tunisia and just ferried people out. The airport was one in Tunis, one plane after another, leaving Tunisia. The disorder that was introduced by this one man with an (coughs) AK-47 meant that the people of the city of Man could not do what order permits them to do enjoy the things of this earth enjoy this temporal order consume what they've been given so even the people of the city of man desire order and so they generally impose it they don't impose it for the reason that we need it but St. Augustine points out in the City of God that we use that order the city of man imposes the order so that they can all have a good time and then we use that same order so that we can contemplate eternal truth. Now, where does that order begin? The steward of that order is the paterfamilias. The paterfamilias is the father of the family, the father of the family. And we have a little quote here that I want to read. From this care arises the peace of the home, which lies in the harmonious interplay of authority and obedience among those who live there. For those who have the care of the others give the orders a man to his wife, parents to her children, masters to their servants. And those who are cared for must obey wives, their husbands, children, their parents, servants, their masters. In the home of a religious man, however, of a man living by faith and as yet a wayfarer from the heavenly city. Those who command serve those who they appear to rule, because, of course, they do not command out of lust to domineer, but out of a sense of duty, not out of pride like princes, but out of solicitude like parents. That's beautiful. The world hears that and says, Oh my gosh, a wife has to obey her husband? Ha! I was in Pomona, where my grandmother grew up, And uh, went to see my uh, aunt and uncle they had their 70th anniversary 70th anniversary beautiful married in 1931 and this was in 2001 so Christina was pregnant with our first babies and she was showing and we went to a Minute Mart to get some snacks because you know pregnant ladies have to eat so I said to my wife, because there were two men casing us, I said to my wife, pay with your cash. And she said, no, you pay. I'm always using my money. So I pulled my wallet out. And when I did, of course, I had to open it. And there was my Pennsylvania driver's license that indicated that I was not a local and that my Hispanic wife, who fits in perfectly in Southern California because she's Colombian, that we were not people who knew our way about, but were in fact strangers. And the men who had been casing us, whom I had seen, whom she had not, approached closer. We paid for our things and went out. And as we went out the door, they followed us. And finally, my wife realized why I had told her to pay with her cash. And they were feet from her, standing right behind her. And she said, open the door, open the door. And I stood there, and I stared at the men. And I just stood there. I didn't have a gun. I sure wish I had it. But I had grown up in the city, so I knew what to do, thank God, and I just stared at them. And they lost their nerve. Then I slowly opened the door, while she was freaking out on the other side of the car, trying to open the door that was locked. And had she obeyed me, we would not have had those moments of tension. But that's why the wife has to obey her husband, and she has never done it again. That was in 2001, we had been married five years, she hasn't done that again. Because she understood it became real to her. The only reason a woman has to obey her husband is because he's charged with protecting her. And he can't protect her if she won't do what he says. If she's going to go off on her own, she's going to get killed. Because we live in a world that's vicious. And the only way that a man can protect his wife is if she does what he says. Not because he wants to dominate her. Because he loves her so much he doesn't want her to die. And this is what... Saint Augustine said in that beautiful quote. So, the father demands obedience but through his sacrifice, through this pouring out of himself, his willingness to lay down his life for his bride, he commands obedience. It is by virtue of his sacrificial generosity, both of himself and of his goods, that the woman and the children want to obey. Now. I have to do a little aside here and make a distinction between what is manly and what is macho. Difference between manliness and machismo. Manliness, of course, is virtuous. And machismo is consumptive and destructive. Machismo appears outwardly masculine. And we might, as a random example, might think of mafioso as being uh, machismo, as being macho. And of course, you know that song by the village people, Macho Man, right? (laughs) And we know that they were all sterile. (laughs) So machismo appears outwardly masculine, but it aims to dominate. It aims to constrain liberty. That is, liberty, you know, is the freedom to do that which is right. License is the freedom to do whatever you want. The License to, the license is the freedom to be wicked. But Maquismo aims to constrain liberty, constrain people doing that which is good. Maquismo aims to exploit, to consume, and then after the usually poor woman, but we know among about 2% of the population, the man, dispense with after the person has been dominated and exploited and consumed, the person is then dispensed with. This is what macho men do. It is what the village people did. And I can't stand being at a ball game and they play that stupid song, YMCA. (laughs) If I want to hear a homosexual anthem, I shouldn't be going to such a manly sport as baseball to hear it. Manliness, on the other hand, in contrast to machismo. Manliness has an outer and an inner consistency. Manliness seeks to serve, to foster freedom, to sacrifice, to bestow life, and then to cherish the lives that it touches, indeed to cherish the lives that proceed from it. A macho man is incapable of being a paterfamilias. But manly men, by virtue of this desire to love, by virtue of this desire to pour themselves out, they will inevitably, inevitably become paterfamilias. The paterfamilias is thus the protector and the provider. The protector and the provider. And the paterfamilias is the protector of the family from enemies both inside and outside the home. Now, we know that the only enemy we truly have is Satan. Uh, so really, we might say adversaries inside and outside the home. My sons came with me. Eric and uh, Tom are here. You want to raise your hands, boys? So I have, I have three sons. The baby that's coming is a boy as well, and uh, his due date is July 6th. A couple years ago, and it was actually in the house that we're in now, my, my son Eric is 12 years old, so I'm going to tell a tale on him, uh, he, he uh, hit his sister very hard, and that was very distressing to me. I can remember the only time I had ever hit my sister when I was a kid and what had happened to me as a result. Now, I didn't do that to him, but I wanted to. But I did spank him, and I explained to him, it is my duty to protect the vulnerable in this house. And if because of your strength, because my son is a boy and therefore stronger than his sisters, if you are going to use your strength to hurt your sisters instead of protect them, I am going to protect them from you. I am the head of the house, and you will not usurp my authority by hurting your sisters. It's out of the question. You do not hit your sisters. You do not hurt your sisters. Because if you hurt your sisters, I'm going to hurt you. And you will want to stop hurting your sisters. So using corporal punishment (laughs) is something that is necessary sometimes, rarely, in order to maintain order within the home. This is still taken for granted, though this is going to be the one of the fronts that we're, we're uh, going to fight. Because the ideology of androgyny insists that uh, men and women are interchangeable and does not recognize the unique gifts that man has to offer to maintaining order within the family, A lot of people say, oh, now that men and women can get married, you're going to be able to marry your dog. Well, this is ridiculous. That's just being silly. And it might happen, but what's really going to happen, the next front is going to be going after men for being men. I just told you, I just told a room full of people here, I live in the state of Pennsylvania, I can't be prosecuted for it. I just told all of you, I spanked my son. My son hit my daughter, so I spanked him. We're looking towards a day not too long from now when I won't be able to say that because you must emasculate the man. If men and women are going to be interchangeable, the man must be castrated, if not literally, figuratively. The gifts, the particular gifts that he has, that he's been given, in order to maintain order within the home are going to be taken away from him by law. And there's already a push for this. So just look in the type that I'm, you know, Uh, movement to end corporal punishment. It was recently upheld not too long ago in the state of Pennsylvania. There was a man who had a son who was 13 years old who punched his mother in the face. So naturally, the man was very disturbed by this, and so he took his belt off and whipped him. And said, you'll never punch your mother again. And Child Protective Services happened to have a phone number, so the son called it and said, I just got whipped by my dad. Well, they swooped in and they took him. They held him for six months, put him in foster care. The father sued the state and said, he punched my wife in the face. And the state of Pennsylvania agreed. And the judge said, I would have done that to you myself. That was a couple years ago. Things are changing fast, though. Things are changing fast. But why would I do something like spank my son? Well, because the objective within my home, the reason I want to maintain order within my home, is the salvation of souls. We want to point our children in the right direction. But we also want to maintain an environment that allows all to keep before their gaze their eternal destiny. The purpose of order within the home is the same as the order that is in society. This order that the city of man maintains, but then the members, the citizens of the city of God utilize. We want order in our homes so that our children can contemplate eternal truth so that they can turn to the Lord and grow in the faith. The obverse of this order that I have articulated for you, the obverse of this order is chaos. Not only do we see in the absence of a paterfamilias, in the absence of a father in the family, a scarcity of material goods, one spiritual good cannot be adequately contemplated. So we know the surefire way, surefire way a man wants to make his kids and his wife poor. What's the surefire way to do it? Leave her. <laughs> right. As soon as the paterfamilias departs. Usually, usually, the vast majority of cases, the family descends into poverty. Remove the man, and we remove material security. And we see, we witness a scarcity of material goods. But also, there's another thing that happens in the home. And I used to work in the projects in South Bethlehem. And I learned something there. The average 14-year-old can beat up his mom the average 14-year-old boy can best his mother. I would say 99% of them. So where the man is absent, where the man is not in the home to protect his wife and his children, as I am in the home to protect my wife and my children, where the man is absent from that, who runs the household? Teenage boys. Not the kids, because the girls are victims of them too. The girls are victims of the teenage boys as well. A teenage boy doesn't know his right from his left. And yet, in the absence of the paterfamilias, he finds himself in charge. And this sinful inclination to dominate flourishes perversely. And we have a miserable life for those who have to live with him. And we see that this disorder this disordered environment in the home then manifests itself in society. So I'm going to read the last quote there. The middle quote, the one between, the third quote had to do with the corporal punishment that I went over already. But I'm going to uh, read that last quote. Since every home should be a beginning of fragmentary constituent of civil community, and every beginning related to some specific end, and every part of the whole of which it is a part, It ought to follow that domestic peace has a relation to political peace. In other words, the ordered harmony of authority and obedience between those who live together has a relation to the ordered harmony of authority and obedience between those who live in a city. What's he saying? If your house is messed up, your society is going to be messed up. If you have home lives that are disordered, you're going to have societies, communities that are disordered. And where is there the most disorder in communities in America? Where there is fatherlessness. The most disorder, the least ability to contemplate the eternal verities occurs within our urban ghettos, where fatherlessness is the norm. Why? Because the 14-year-old boys are in charge. And 14-year-old boys generally aren't known to be theologians. <laughs> <laughs> so, conversely, obviously, if we have well-ordered homes, we'll have well-ordered societies. In the city of Scranton, across the United States, that is, Scranton's where I'm from, the family has broken down. I had my eighth child, or rather my wife had my eighth child. On August 1st, 2013, she'll be two, very soon. And uh, Monica was born uh, with a night shift nurse who loves to uh, be there at night. and, and uh, she said to me, Father, I really like three things about your family. Some of you might have heard me say this before. And I said, what are those three things that you like? She says, I like the three things because they're all together in you. And I usually see these three things in uh, disparate families, but I hardly ever see them. I think she said never. I think that's probably an exaggeration. But she said, I never see them all in one family. I said, what are those three things? She said, first, you're married. 60% of the children in Scranton are born to unwed parents. She said, first, you're married. Second, all of your children are both of yours. And I said, well, what's the third thing? She said, "Oh, oh, you have a job. So imagine that. 2013, she never sees parents that are married having children that are both of theirs and the father is employed. It's thus no wonder that our city has lost half of its population in the last 70 years. We know about the exodus from Detroit. 200,000 people left Detroit between 2000 and 2010. And that exodus began a long time before that. But since the end of World War II, Scranton has lost half its population. People flee disorder. People desire order. Christians desire order so they can contemplate the eternal verities. The citizens of the city of man desire order so they can have a good time. And it's hard to have a good time when all your neighbors are 14 year olds who want to run you over. So the man must understand himself, the pater must understand himself to be standing in the place of Christ, pouring himself out for the good of his family and of his community, fostering the environment that will allow the most people to go in faith and ultimately attain the beatific vision before the throne of grace. This is what the man does. And where do we find that? Hmm. St. Augustine, of course, didn't come up with it on his own. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to uh, Ephesians 5. What St. Augustine articulated for us in the City of God Book 19 is something that we've uh, read many times before. In fact, it used to be the, uh, under the 62 missile before, before uh, the, the missile of Blessed Paul the VI, uh, this was the lesson that was read At every uh, wedding. It was read in Latin of course, so perhaps too many people didn't understand it, but it was read at every single nuptial mass until uh, 1965. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is Ephesians 5 verse 21. Wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives also be subject in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Why must wives obey their husbands, and husbands love their wives, so that they can get to heaven? The purpose is our eternal salvation. Marriage is a sacrament. Because in the mutual self-gift, one to the other, it gives us graces that are necessary for us to get to heaven. And of course, in saying this and reading this passage, we always make clear that a wife is never obligated to obey her husband if he is telling her to do something wrong. So if you are happen to be married to a macho man you can say no, and you should, unless of course he has a conversion and becomes a manly man. You never are obligated women. You are never obligated to obey the command of an unjust paterfamilias. In fact, you are obligated to disobey him. You should sooner die You should sooner be willing to die, to be martyred, than to obey an unjust command from a dishonorable paterfamilias. Paul does not mean do whatever your husband says, no matter what it is. This passage has been used and abused to try to communicate that perverse lie. But we know the truth. The truth is you obey so that you can get to heaven. He loves, he lays his life down, he pours himself out, he is willing to die for you so that you can get to heaven with him. In fact, this is sort of an aside. Premarital sex doesn't make any sense, particularly from the the viewpoint of the woman. I mean, logically, uh, what is the leading cause of death for women in Benin, for example, in West Africa? What's the leading cause of death? What do women die from most? Childbirth. When a woman takes a man's, or receives a man's semen, she is taking her life into her hands. She is saying, I will die for you. I will die for you. I may, in fact, die. I love you so much I'm willing to bear your child by which I might die." Why would she do that unless he had first said, I will die for you, and demonstrated it? He should make that pledge. He should pledge his life first. First, he pledges his life and demonstrates it through like a really valuable gift like an engagement ring that costs thousands of dollars. I will die for you. Oh, okay, now, okay, then I'll give my body to you. That makes sense. Not requiring the pledge, not requiring the gift that is a corporeal manifestation of that pledge, that's crazy. It's totally illogical. I think it's insane. So. Who has lived this out? I promised you examples of the saints. Who has lived this out? What models do we have? The saints will help us articulate the characteristics of manliness. How can we as men live this out and form the families that we need in order to restore civilization? The first saint I'm going to talk to you about is Saint Augustine, the man I began with. The manly man doesn't run away. I said to you that he died in the year 430 on August the 28th in a besieged city. Well, the vandals had come across from Europe. Deacon Sabatino mentioned how the Arabs invaded Spain. Well, way before that, the Germans invaded North Africa. And they swept across uh, Roman North Africa, and they besieged Hippo. And Augustine was an old man by that time, about 75 years old. And uh, he was still writing the city of God when they got there. And his parishioners, his, his people, the Catholics of Hippo, the Vandals, remember, were Arian Christians. They did not believe in the divinity of Jesus Christ. Uh, they said he was a great man, the greatest of all men, but just a man. And so they knew that one of the targets of the soldiers from the invading army would be the bishop, the Catholic bishop. So they pleaded with him. They said, please, Augustine, our father, our paterfamilias, if we move you down the coast, because they came through Algeria from the area of Tunisia. They had come from, uh, uh, they were moving from the uh, west to the east. Said, if we move you a little further east down the coast, you'll be safe. And he said, no, a father does not abandon his children. This is true for the bishop, who is the father of his diocese, the father of his Catholic family. It is true for every true father of the family, every true paterfamilias, he does not run away. Well, the siege was hard on the people and uh, they never got over the walls before he died. He died in the midst of the siege and uh, you can go to his uh, grave to this day. It's in Algeria, so you might take your life into your hands to make that pilgrimage, Uh, but the Algerian government has at least maintained the church uh, where his mortal remains are. Second saint, Isidore. Saint Isidore and of course when I talk about Saint Augustine and how he doesn't run away, else didn't run away? Gethsemane? Huh? Anybody? <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so he, the father who refuses to run away, refuses to abandon his children, is obviously standing in the role of Christ, standing in the place of Christ, refusing to let the devil have his way with his children. So the second saint, Isidore. And uh, if you have your Bibles, we can look at uh, 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 3. And here we have St. Paul talking to the Thessalonian church. Beginning at verse 6 in chapter 3. We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is living in idleness and not in accord with the traditions that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. We were not idle when we were with you. We did not eat anyone's bread without paying. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not burden any of you. It was not because we have not that right, but to give you in our conduct an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this command, if anyone will not work, let him not eat. I tell my kids that all the time. <laughs> they say, why do we have to work all the time? Do you like to eat? Because I do, and that's why I work. That's not, re- <laughs> not really the reason I work, but I like to say that to my kids. I also ask them, what's your middle name? And then they say, Christina? No, your middle name is Work. So, Joni Work Bergman. So get to work. <laughs> St. Isidore is our example, because not only did he work, he also had it in the correct order. He also rested, and he began every day with worship. He went to Mass every day. And his fellow workers, St. Isidore was from Spain, his fellow workers said, you know, he's a slacker. We." slave away all day long. And he gets an hour off every day so he can go to church. So after they complained, they looked out on him working and there were angels plowing the field beside him. So they stopped complaining. So he would do three times the work of everyone else because he had an ordered life. He knew the objective of life is not simply the consumption of goods, but getting to heaven. So he began his day every, every day with prayer and then worked hard. And at the end of the day, what did he do with the fruit of his labor? He gave it away. Where he would feed people in his house, bring the poor into his house after he'd worked as a farmer all day long. He'd bring the people in his house and feed them. And his wife would say, why are you doing this? We don't have enough. And so over and over again, at St. Isidore's house, the miracle of the loaves and fishes happened. Where there was always enough. Never did St. Isidore's wife run out of food. So, we begin our day with prayer, we work hard, and then we give it away. So third, uh, St. Uh, St. Charles Lawanga. St. Charles Lawanga is chaste. I'm going to read you a passage from Tobit. Tobit chapter 8, beginning at verse 5. Tobias began to pray. Blessed art thou, o God of our fathers, and blessed be thy holy and glorious name forever. Let the heavens and all thy creatures bless thee. Thou madest Adam and gavest him Eve, his wife, as a helper and support. From them the race of mankind has sprung. Thou didst say, it "Is not good that the man should be alone. Let us make a helper for him like himself. He prayed that, of course, in the presence of his wife next to the marital bed. And now, O Lord, I am not taking this sister of mine because of lust, but with sincerity... Grant that I may find mercy and may grow old together with her. This is their wedding night. And she said with him, Amen. Then they both went to sleep. He loved her so much he didn't consummate his marriage the day they got married. He was chaste. I am not taking this sister of mine because of lust. Marriage is not simply the illicit means by which we can have sexual intercourse. So therefore, if we are, even if we're married, and we are using pornography, uh, we are contracepting, we are, God forbid, committing sodomy with our spouse, we are committing adultery. We are adulterers. St. Charles Luanga is the man's example because he was one of the martyrs of Uganda. Anybody know anything about them? You know what happened when the proto-martyrs, they were the first martyrs in sub-Saharan Africa. Now we know that there's even been African popes. They were from North Africa. But this is in the 1880s when the gospel was being brought to sub-Saharan Africa Uh, St. Charles Lawanga was one of the court pages for the king in what is today Uganda. And the king had a tradition of molesting the pages. And St. Charles Lawanga, having become a Catholic and a catechist, told his fellow pages, we can't do that. And we aren't going to do that. And they all said, that's good with me. You could imagine if you were one of the pages, you wouldn't want to do that either. And the king said, well, then you'll die. And they did. They marched to their deaths, singing. Some of them were killed on the way. Others were killed at the site of the execution. But it's a unique uh, time, and there's special importance to people like me who have come to... uh, The one true faith from Anglicanism uh, because on that day it was not only Catholic pages that were killed it was also Anglicans and when they were uh, canonized by blessed Paul VI uh, the Pope made mention of that that this is a unique circumstance where the martyrs uh, were not only Catholic that there were uh, Protestant martyrs dying with Catholic martyrs because they would not. They would not do that which is too shameful to speak about. Fourth saint is for men Saint John the Baptist. And what does he do but speak truth to power? The, uh, saint John the Baptist was uh, arrested you know because he said to Herod the king you cannot have your brother's wife. What Herod had done is he had actually married his, or not, obviously, this is an attempted marriage, just as the, the marriages that were legalized by the Supreme Court on uh, uh, Friday are not real marriages. Uh, they, they, this was not a real marriage, and, and St. John the Baptist pointed that out. Now, he wasn't his brother, but you know, in the Semitic languages, there's no uh, word Uh, for half brother or cousin so they just use the word brother so the Bible says that Herod had married his brother's wife but in fact he had married his half-brother's wife and St. John the Baptist pointed that out and of course we know the story Uh, Salome danced for him and uh, in that dance uh, Herod lusted after you know who this was then You understand the perversion of this Herod lusted after his niece. He so enjoyed her dance that he said, I will give you whatever you want. And what did his niece ask for? The head, of the the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The head of John the Baptist on a platter. And uh, we have another, uh, a, a, another saint in line with uh, Saint John the Baptist, who was also a martyr for marriage, and that's Saint John Fisher, uh, he had said he had said uh, he had said uh, that he would die a martyr for marriage when Henry VIII tried to get rid of Catherine of Aragon, and indeed, uh, six years later, after he said that, he was basically the defense attorney for Catherine of Aragon when Henry was trying to dump her, and he made this speech and said, "I'm willing to die as a martyr for marriage." He, in fact did. He, in fact, uh, on January 22nd, 1535, he died as a martyr for marriage. So, uh, speaking truth to power may very well cost us our head, as it cost John the Baptist and St. John Fisher their heads. But nevertheless, it is our obligation as men to tell people the way it is. It is all right, for example, to say that Fallon Fox, who crushed that poor woman's face, is a man. And we can refer to him as he, no matter whom we're speaking to. In fact, it's an absurdity to call that man, who was able to crush her face in two minutes and 17 seconds, a woman. Women don't get injuries like that when they fight each other in those cage matches. Women aren't capable of crushing each other's faces. Speak truth to power. The fifth, Saint Louis the ninth, And I've already talked to you about how, in Ephesians 5, a man is willing to lay down his life in order that his wife might be presented pure at the last day before the throne of grace. He's willing to die. And how did Louis the Ninth die? How did St. Louis, after St. Louis, Missouri, right? St. Louis, Louisville, Kentucky. How did Louisiana? We have all these things named after him. And this nation. How did he die? The Crusades. He was on the Crusades. He died of natural causes, but he died when he was on Crusade. And this doesn't mean that all of us have to go out and be soldiers and go out and fight. But there has to be a willingness to fight. So for example, men, you have jackets on, you have shirts on that are buttoned, hopefully some of you. Look at my cassock here. Why is it that I can put my right hand inside my cassock? Because I can pull out my weapon. Yeah, anything. Weapon, any, any, any means of defending myself and defending others. Women, look at your shirts. They're the other way. They're the other way. The custom, the very way we make shirts indicates that it is the man's responsibility to pull the weapon out and defend the family. Where am I standing right now? You all have your back to that door. I, as a paterfamilias, am looking out over you you have all entrusted me with your lives. I'm looking through that door. There's nobody with an AK-47 coming there. But if there were, I'd run that way towards him. This is why the man sits at the head of the table. He sits at the head of the table. Where is his back to? His back is to the wall so he can look out and see anybody coming in. When you go to a restaurant, where do you sit, men? If you sit with your back to the door, you're not being a manly man. You sit facing the door so that you can see the threat. And we see as our society descends into a wretched disorder, this is going to be even more important. These customs that might have fallen by the wayside, that people might not observe anymore, I've observed them my whole life. My father taught them from when I was, I can't remember when he started telling me, this is where you sit. I couldn't do anything, I was five years old, you know, but. He taught me what I was supposed to do, what my role would be. So when I sit anywhere, I am looking out, because it is my responsibility to defend you. The manly man must be willing to fight. Now, if you're not willing to fight, if you're a pacifist, and if you're Catholic, you shouldn't be a pacifist. There is no such thing as a Catholic pacifist. That's a lie. Now, if you're a Mennonite, And you're sincere in your convictions, you can sit with your back to the door. My family were Mennonites. They came here in 1727. And over the course of about 150 years, we went from Mennonite, and now our family's Catholic. It's much better. (laughs) In a world afflicted by sin, pacifism makes no sense. And in fact, the Mennonites and the Amish, they rely on us to protect them. There's no Mennonites or Amish in Europe. You notice that? they were all driven and laid over here where we would protect them. We gave them religious freedom, we would kill them. They don't exist in Europe. Pacifism doesn't work. Six, St. Thomas More. The manly man is a patriot. I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. If you look there, uh, beginning at verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to praise those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing right you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Live as free men, yet without using your freedom as a pretext for evil, but live as servants of God. Honor all men. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. St. Thomas More said on the scaffold, You might have seen that beautiful play by Robert Bolt and the movie A Man for All Seasons, which won Best Picture. He said, I die the king's good servant, but God's first. We, as manly men, do not disown our nation because five women and men in black robes have made ridiculous, nonsensical, unscientific, inhuman decisions in the Supreme Court over the course of the past 50 years. We still love our country. In fact, St. Thomas More died because he loved his country. We have Richard Rich, who in a study done of the original source documents, uh, scholars who weren't Catholic concluded Richard Rich definitely perjured himself to get Thomas More's conviction. He perjured himself because Henry wanted him to say whatever he had to say so I could kill Thomas More. I want Thomas More dead. Say whatever you have to say so I can kill him. Richard Rich said, sure. And Thomas More died and said, I die the king's good servant, but God's first. Who was the real patriot? Who loved his country more? And Richard Rich, they did a survey of who's the most despised Englishman in the history of England? Richard Rich. (laughs) Next, St. Joseph. Now, of course, we could apply it to him chastity. But what I want to emphasize in him is that he says sorry. He says sorry. How do we know he said sorry? He isn't quoted anywhere in the Bible. He doesn't have a word, not a sentence. But when he found out that she was pregnant, he resolved to divorce her quietly. And then the Holy Spirit said, don't do that. And he said, okay. He admitted he was wrong, and he went back to the course that God had given him. He said, I'm wrong. I'm wrong. And I'm sorry. We can be certain of it. Because he ended up, of course, uh, willing to lay down his life for his family. Took him to Egypt. And next, St. John de Barbeuf. He doesn't complain. St. John de Barbeuf was one of the North American martyrs and he's buried up in Midland, Ontario, at the North American Shrine in Canada. Uh, The North American Shrine in Oresville, New York, doesn't have any actual mortal remains because their bodies don't exist, uh, uh, as far as we know, in this world, because they were thrown in a river. But St. John de Bourbeuf, when the Mohawk were killing him, they took boiling water to mimic baptism and poured it over him, then they took uh, a necklace of metal that they had heated in a fire and to mimic the rosary they put it around his neck. St. John de Berbouf didn't complain. In the course of those trials he didn't cry out. The Mohawk couldn't believe it. And since they couldn't do him in with the torches they finally smashed his head with a tomahawk. I've seen his skull, it's on the altar there. And after they did that they cut his heart out and ate it because they said, we want that courage. We want the ability to suffer things like that and not complain. They didn't know how to get it initially. Of course the Mohawk are Catholic now. (laughs) But at the time they didn't know how to get it. So they thought eating his heart would be the way. The manly man doesn't complain. And finally, the manly man is thankful. Mm -hmm. So I want you to turn to Philippians and we'll end tonight. Philippians, chapter 4 beginning at verse 4 rejoice O no Lord always again I will say rejoice this is a man who was in prison <laughs> he wrote this from prison let all men know your forbearance the Lord is at hand have no anxiety about anything but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your request be made known to God and the peace of God which passes all understanding Will keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is gracious, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity Not that I complain of want, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and want. I can do all things in him who strengthens me. The secret he's talking about is gratitude. He says thank you in all circumstances. He was in prison and he was able to say thank you to God. Thank you, Jesus, for all your blessings upon me, not least of which is the redemption you've offered me in your own blood. How can we do anything but say thank you? God is still on his throne. Marriage is still marriage. I'm still a man. The ladies are still women. What the citizens of the city of Man do can't change reality, the way things are. And that's something for which we ought to give thanks. Thank you. Father, is not the nonsensical calculus that you mentioned earlier regarding premarital premarital sex um, radically altered by the widespread availability of artificial contraception? (coughs) Absolutely, indeed. Uh, This is one of the things that we we have to uh, historically go back even before Lambeth, and so I don't know if I, uh, I don't recall if I covered this, but uh, in in those talks, but uh, I might have mentioned the name, Alfred Comstock, and after the Civil War, so we're talking post 1865, the uh, soldiers came marching home. What we always see is moral degradation after a gigantic conflagration, there's always a societal wide moral degradation, it's, in, it's almost inevitable. And so the soldiers who had had hookers, girls with them and so forth, uh, this is where we get the word hooker, became popularized, uh, they, they came home and they said, well we want the same uh, contraceptive devices and access to abortionists and so forth and access to pornography that we had when we were fighting the war. And uh, the country said, oh my gosh, this is going to completely destroy our nation. If we separate the Marital Act from its purpose, from its unitive and procreative purpose, we're going to go down uh, in a, into a cesspool. So in 1873, every legislature in the nation passed what, what came to be known as the Comstock Laws and banned abortion and contraception, outlawed them. And these were Protestant legislatures. Catholics at the time were still disenfranchised. They essentially couldn't get elected, if they could even vote. And the Protestants, because they could apprehend the natural law and its implications for the moral life, outlawed abortion and contraception. It was those laws that were overturned in Griswold versus Connecticut in 1965, where the Supreme Court invented the right to privacy, which issued in the Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton decisions in 1973. So we as a people recognized what you're saying, that chastity is undermined by the availability of contraception. It's so undermined, we should outlaw it and keep it out of people's hands as best we can. In fact, the Catechism Church, Catholic Church to this day still says that pornography should be outlawed. And civil authorities have the responsibility to inhibit its distribution and inhibit its production. The catechism, look it up. Pornography should be outlawed. And what did the contraceptive peddlers have with them? It was all the same thing. They had contraception and porn, and they had the contacts with the abortionists. In the 18, late 1860s, early 1870s. So we as a nation have recognized this, and we pulled back once before. We pulled back in 1873 and said, we can't do this. A little different today. We'll see the consequences, and I think in the future, of course, we'll pull back again because it's death.
0: Father, do you see the prophetic wisdom of Pope Paul VI in Humanae Vitae paralleling the uh, use of contraception leading to where we are now in our culture in this spiraling degradation
1: 100% in fact that that, that those tapes talk specifically uh, the the ones that I did on uh, Lambeth conference 1930 they they talk specifically about the uh, what will happen saint uh, sorry blessed uh, paul said uh, blessed paul VI said what would happen if contraceptive use became widespread and it's what we need to remember is that in 1968 when he issued that encyclical the same year was issued a book by a man named Paul Ehrlich who is still alive today, and it was called the Population Bomb and they hauled him out uh, they took the mothballs off of him and uh, hauled him out so he could do the uh, TV circuits when the seventh billionth kid was born and they said, Oh, he was born in the Philippines because of course the the population control nut jobs were targeting the Philippines with uh, to, to make po- contraception legal and uh, Uh, Paul Ehrlich's book, The Population Bomb, predicted all kinds of wars and horrible things happening. Every single thing that he said in his book, The Population Bomb, has been demonstrated to be uh, unequivocally false. Total uh, 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 false prophet. He's a Malthusian, false prophet. uh, Just like Thomas Malthus, uh, who got it all wrong, so Paul Ehrlich got it all wrong. That doesn't mean the media and the people in in power don't keep listening to him. Contrast that with what Paul VI said in 1968. Every single thing he said uh, became true. We are morally morally degraded, as he said. Uh, Women have become objects, as he said. People believe they can do anything they want with their bodies, as he said. And having begun to use contraceptives on our own, governments will impose them, as he said. So everything he said came true, everything Paul Ehrlich said was wrong, but when we have a baby born, we talk to Paul Ehrlich and ignore Paul the Sixth. So until we start listening to Paul the Sixth and forget Paul Ehrlich, the degradation will continue. The peace of God was past with all understanding, Keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be upon you and remain with you always.
0: We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155.